Hi, everyone. Robin Sills from St. Mary's Hospital. Welcome to another show, Medically Speaking. And we are so happy you can join us tonight. We have with us one of my favorite doctors, Dr. Alexander Palesti. Hi, Doc. Hi. How are you? I'm going to bring it closer to you. Dr. Palesti was really kind um, to switch his program. Actually, no, we switched the program because of you because you were away last week. No, I think we got bumped last week. No, we got bumped basketball. two weeks ago. Two weeks ago, we got bumped for basketball. So last week, you were away, so Dr. Freitag substituted for you, and you joined us this week Correct. on her night. So thank you for joining us. Dr. Palesti is the uh, chief of surgery at St. Mary's Hospital, and he actually um, is our, one of our oncology surgeons, Correct. Correct. I'm one of the surgical oncologists. I direct the residency program and am a surgeon in the community now for 15 years. 15? But you've been part of this community since you were young, right? That's you were correct. born here, so you're I a Waterbury boy. That's right. That's right. You're a Waterbury boy, which I love. I talk about this every week that we have the best of the best right here in our community, so there's absolutely no reason to go outside these doors. That's right. Um, Dr. Corvo, our, our chief of uh, surgery, has uh, brought together a great group of surgeons here. And uh, really, we can do most things um, that the larger centers do. Absolutely. You know, I've only been back at the hospital since May of 2014, but have been part of this medical community my whole life. And coming back to the hospital, I think my first few weeks I was with you, and I was with Dr. Corvo, and you educated me so much just on the development of the surgical program at St. Mary's Hospital, and I want to educate our audience a little bit about that, and before I go on, I want to make sure everyone has a number, although if you're listening to WHR, you probably already know the number, our loyal listeners, 203-757-1320, so if you want to call in with any questions, um, we're going to focus tonight's talk on our surgical services at St. Mary's Hospital, the program that we have, and we're going to talk about our robotics program, because that's a huge piece of what we do at St. Mary's, and this is our fifth year. We just celebrated our five-year, uh, five-year, I call it birthday anniversary with our two robots. But please talk about the excellence in our tell program. Our robots by name. Oh yeah, our robots Zena have names. And Sergio. That's right, Zena and Sergio, and we're actually creating a blog for them, which is kind of cool. It's already up and running. It's already up and running. They're already communicating. They're already communicating with our public. And Shannon just left, or I would throw that blog out to you. I think it's robots talk. But I'll I'll uh, I'll send it out to my to my listening audience um, on Friday when I'm here again. But it's this program at St. Mary's. I learned so much in the first few weeks I was there talking to you about the excellent surgeons that we have, and the level of expertise, robotically trained, and we have 27 in our network that are robotically trained. 27 robotically trained surgeons. Um, a number of us are proctors in the general surgery service alone. We have three proctors of the seven surgeons who do robotic surgery. And by proctors, I mean the three of us go out to other institutions and train new upcoming surgeons how to use the robot and how to effectively perform the operations that they're planning on doing. So our level of excellence has been mastered here in such that you are a proctor, so you're out teaching. Correct. So your hands-on experience with utilizing the robot, other people are requesting that hands-on experience to help them get to a, a level of excellence. That's right. Um, we are 
out not just within Connecticut, but for example, myself, I've proctored in New York, I've proctored in Washington, Massachusetts, and Rhode Island. Um, I've probably proctored upwards of 40 uh, cases amounting to about eight different surgeons. I think every time I talk to you or every time I'm with you and Dr. Corvo, I learn something new. So it's an incredible piece of information. You have a wealth of knowledge. And, you know, I deal with you on a day-to-day basis as a peer. But when I hear you speak, very much like I did a a week ago at the Lever Center talking about colorectal cancer and colorectal screenings in general, you educated me. And I mean, being a nurse, you know, you think that you know everything, but just sitting there listening to you, the the wealth of knowledge that you have in, in Dr. Corvo, and we have it right here in our community, it's bar none, some of the best. So I want to tell you again, I know I told you privately, but your lecture was great. If anyone missed it, it's, I, I, we will probably do it again next year. Certainly, absolutely. But, you know, we always do programs for the Lever Center. So back to our robotics. So we brought it five years ago. How did you feel about it? when it was brought to you that this was something that we're going to do? I mean, were you skeptical? I'm sure you were skeptical at first, right? Uh, honestly speaking, I, I really didn't want to have much to do with the robot. Now, granted, the, the robot came in as mostly the gynecologists and urologists using it. I had some exposure to the robot at Roswell Park where I did um, my uh, fellowship training. Uh, they had a fairly active uh urology service that used it and I thought it was neat it was cool it was kind of fun but I didn't necessarily think that it was applicable to what we as general surgeons did so for the first three years I kind of looked at it and um, I think most general surgeons were of the same skeptical outlook that that I was Uh, I think the more that I watched and the more that I saw some of my colleagues in bigger institutions who started to adopt the robot, the more I realized that this was really something that was going to become mainstay and uh, a thing of the future. Definitely, you know, and I'm going to parallel that to something in real terms for an individual out there. You know, we don't think we can ever do use a computer. You know, I'm never going to do that or I'm never going to do my banking online. I'm never going to. And once you start doing something and it makes your world so much easier and the benefits in the long run, because when you look at robotics and we have the benefits in front of us, minimally invasive, shorter hospital stay, shorter recovery time and virtually scarless. Some of those were already being done in laparoscopic surgery, correct? Correct. Absolutely. But this brings it to another level. It brings it to a whole different level. Um, I think what the end or what the patient doesn't realize is what's going on for the period of time that they're asleep. And although the scars from laparoscopy or minimally invasive surgery and, and robotics are oftentimes similar, the uh, uh, operation itself when you're doing it with the robot is, one, much more elegant, and two, it's much easier to perform a lot of the tasks at hand. Um, that ability to have a wristed instrument that is just like operating with your hands, I think, is really what, what makes the difference. Um, what I truly feel about robotics is robotics is not laparoscopic surgery. Mm-hmm. Robotics is actually open surgery in a confined space because everything that you can do open for the most part, you can do with the robot. And I think that's how 
we need to start thinking about robotic surgery. During your lecture last week, you had some visualization of that for um, the, the people that attended, and I think they were blown away by some of the things that the robot can do. I had the opportunity of going into the OR when we did the um, television, television commercial, well, show, actually, television show about the robot, which is on our website that you can see the robot in action. And watching the surgeon utilize the tool from a control, so maybe we could tell our audience a little bit about how that works. So I, I think first we have to redefine robotics. I think when we think of robot, we think mm. of, of uh, Buck Rogers right. and, and the robots that are completely independent. I think a lost in space. Correct. <laughs> doing, dating myself again, <laughs> but that's the robot likewise, I think likewise. about. <laughs> you know, something that's doing things independently. And the reality of it is, is that robotic surgery is probably misnamed. It should probably be called computer-assisted surgery mm. because at no time is the robot doing anything independently. It's It's really... It's a tool, and it's a tool that we use from a distance. So there's actually the machine which sits right at the bedside and, and through which it's essentially laparoscopic-type instruments are placed into the abdomen through tiny little uh, ports or, or essentially tubes that go inside the abdomen. The abdomen's filled up with air so that we can see, and then those instruments are inserted into that space. And then at a distance is essentially a console where you have two handsets, almost like a video game, which control all the different arms on the robot. So you're looking through uh, a monitor at the console, and it gives you 3D vision as opposed to laparoscopy, which is looking at something on a flat screen. And the easiest thing to think of would be a 3D television set versus a 2D television set. You get that three-dimensional ability, plus you have the intricacies of using the robot um, where you can pick up and do very fine dissections, which you were previously with uh, laparoscopy unable to do. So laparoscopy is a smaller space, so you can't... Well, see, visualize as much. It, it's the same space. Same it's space, just, just the optics on right. the camera that you're using with the robot and the technology behind what, uh, behind the, I'd say, interpretation of right. the optics as delivered to your eyes or just much It's improved. a 3D image. So what types of surgeries can we do utilizing robotics? Um, so from a general surgery, from what I do, we do operations. We take out gallbladders. Two different methods. Um, one is truly virtually scarless, where we enter through the belly button, and the incision is completely confined mm -hmm. to the belly button, and we can take the gallbladder out with just that one single incision that you almost can't see after the operation's over. And the other way is using multiple ports. We use four, four separate incisions that are maybe the size of your fingernail, the width of your fingernail, um, and we can take the gallbladder out that way. Um, we're also doing colon operations. Um, we do that appendix. amazed me. The colon operations really amazed me because you show, showed some pictures of patients that had had the surgery at robotics. You virtually couldn't see that they had a portion of their colon removed. Yeah, and and on women, we actually make our incision just uh, in the same place that a C-section incision is, right. So right on the bikini line, and it's maybe five or six centimeters long, so it's, you know, you, you can't see it when somebody's wearing a bathing suit for so the younger patient population, that's very appealing. Hmm. Now, 
And you were mentioned earlier that we utilize it for gynecological surgeries as well as urology. What do they utilize Correct. it for? So urology, um, we're using it for prostate surgeries. We remove the bladder uh, or portions of the bladder for bladder tumors. Um, the kidney can be removed or a portion of the kidney can be removed. Um, in gynecology, the ovaries can be taken out, the uterus can be taken out, or both. Um, and those are surgeries that women, especially with hysterectomies, would have to miss six to seven weeks, sometimes eight weeks of work, or they're getting back to their life. That's right. Oftentimes now what used to be an in-hospital stay for a hysterectomy for at least one or two days, if not longer, now patients go home on the same day. It's um, incredible. They're up and walking on the following day and doing, you know, many patients go back to work after a week and a half to two weeks. And a lot of that you know, is paired, too, with the patient's general health prior to the surgery. Certainly. I mean, you know, a sick patient, you know, somebody who's sick right. preoperatively is certainly going to have a longer uh, recovery time as compared to a young, healthy patient. But now, you mentioned um, we were talking about if someone's had a cesarean section. So that brings me to think about if there's a patient that has a lot of scar tissue, does it make it difficult with the robot? No, as a matter of fact, that's one of the operations that we do as general surgeons is what's called the lysis of adhesions where you actually take down all of the scar tissue that's in the abdomen. And as long as you can make enough space to get into the abdomen uh, with those ports or little tubes we were talking about, then you can take down all the scar tissue relatively quickly. Right, Um, because over time, a lot of those adhesions cause a lot of pain. They can cause a lot of pain, and they can cause bowel obstruction. They can cause a lot of a lot of different uh, complications. Um, so, being able to utilize the robot to do this, as opposed to laparoscopy, um, is much uh, quicker right. and easier on the patient. So, you have someone that comes into your office, and I know that we also specialize in hernias. Mm-hmm. I know we can do do hernias with the robot. Someone comes in. What makes them a candidate for one or the other? And is it a conversation that you have with the patient? Do you give them that choice, or how do you come to that decision? I mean, I always give the patient the choice. Right. Um, and then I also tell them that, you know, I think for me, in my hands, using the robot is, certainly decreases the complication and some of the risks. Not that risks, I mean, not the complications don't occur. Right. Again, just keep in mind, the robot's an instrument. So any type of complication that can occur laparoscopically or open can occur with the robot. I think you have to exercise, you know, uh, caution no matter how you approach things. But for me, in my hands, I find that the robot is a, is a much better tool. Um, and so I give the patient the choice. I mean, but clearly tell them that comfort-wise, I think the robot would be a better decision. Are they ever fearful when you say the word robot? Do you have to go through that process with them, explain what the robot really is? Absolutely. Again, I think many patients think that the robot is, you know, something that you put on, walk out of the room, have a <laughs> cup of coffee down the hallway, and come back when and it's done. And then he texts you when you're done. <laughs> exactly. Doing what it's supposed to do. And now that they have a website and, and blog, I think that's going to even be worse. I know. I, I thought of that, too, when they told me they were going to have a blog with the robots. And even the fact that we've named the robots, I'm like, oh, we're giving them a personality. Absolutely. But it'll make them less, I think it will make our, our people in our community less fearful. I think so. And, and I think, you know, 
You think initially when the robot started in, in, in our institution in 2010, probably until two years ago, there was a lot of negative press for the robot. Um, matter of fact, there's a web page called Bad Robot, and it's like oh. one of these these legal ads. Did you get harmed by the robot and this and that? And and I think what people failed to recognize is that the robot is not an independently acting practitioner, one. And two, you know, bad surgery happens, and no matter if it's open or closed or laparoscopic, you put somebody behind a console who's who's not cautious, they're going to run into problems, and that's going to happen you know, all over. So I think, you know, they were jumping on the fact that it's new technology. Right. And regardless of what arena you're in, new technology always becomes a target. Right. But new technology is honestly the standard of care now. This new technology should be the standard of care. New tech, this is becoming the standard of care. And I think as, you know, as we go through different generations of the robot, I think it's going to become safer and even better than it already is. Um, They've just come out with the next generation of the robot, of which I think we're looking heavily into purchasing, and, and it's going to make the operations even faster. That'll make our easier. family three. That's right. We don't just have one. We have two. We'll have our first-generation child. We'll have our first-generation <laughs> child from Xena and uh, Sergio. That's right. <laughs> now, does utilizing the robot cut down on the time for a surgery? Um. I think time is about the same, and remember, there's a learning curve. So some of the more inexperienced docs or docs who are starting out with the robot, their operative times may actually increase until you become comfortable with using the robot. So there's definitely a curve with your experience, as with any new technology that you adopt for anything. When you first had your cell phone, it probably took quite some time to text and, and get around your email and negotiate all the different things that your phone could do. And, you know, now, 20 years after cell phones have been out, it's second nature to most of us in using it. And I think that also is the case with, with surgical technology, particularly the robot. Now, when you're seeing some residents come out of programs now, they've already had hands-on experience. Yes, absolutely. Our residents have hands-on experience um, with the robot. We actually, you know, being in charge of the the teaching side of of the institution um, surgically, we've actually purchased a robotic simulator. So it's not, you know, when when residents are being trained on the robot, it's not their first time. It's just like flight simulation. Right. So that, you know, we have them doing 50 to 60 cases before they even get on a robot that's attached to a person. Are you seeing that our program is is maybe drawing more attention with the student bodies in in coming toward to us for a residency program? I think our our robotic situation in terms of the volume that we do here and the fact that the residents are a part of it is a big draw for people. Um, they find that very attractive. Um, plus the fact that not only do we have a robotic simulator, we have a whole simulation lab that's dedicated toward training uh, new young surgeons. That's it's incredible. We're going to take a quick break. We're already at the almost the halfway point, and we will when we come back. We're going to talk a little bit more about the colorectal um, program that you did, and a little bit about the surgery with the robot. And we will talk about a high risk program that we're involved in. We'll be right back.
back, everyone. Robin Sills, Medically Speaking for St. Mary's Hospital. And we have here with us tonight Dr. Alexander Perlasti, who's Chief of Surgery and the Oncology Program at St. Mary's Hospital. Thank you for being with us. Pleasure. Pleasure. I, I didn't bound or gag you. I, I call you Chief. What, Chairman? What do you want to be called? No, I'm not Chairman or Chief. You're what? I'm the program director. He's pro. I call him chief, <laughs> chief and chairman, and then I and then well, I call one of you chief, and then I call Doctor um, Corvo chairman. He's chief and chairman. He's chief and chairman. I don't want to overstep my. Bounds. You don't want to step your bounds, <laughs> especially when I think listening. of the two. Of you let me tell you something, <laughs> Doctor Corvo. He would be thrilled that you're here promoting the program, so we're okay with that. You're but definitely uh, a team. You're a on great team. And, you know, the one thing that is so impressive about you guys, you don't care about titles. No. You don't care about titles. And you just care about the program. You just care about getting the care to the patient. We care about the and patients. Absolutely. And, the and, program. and getting the information out to the community. And I, I'm so behind that. And just you being here tonight, taking time out. I mean, I don't think you know, our audience understands. You came straight from the hospital. You're getting text on patient you know, patient issues as we speak, as we're sitting here, and you'll probably go back to the hospital before you leave here and then fly home. And so it's a 24-hour day for you sometimes. Sometimes. That goes into the next. And you definitely, you know, wear your heart on your sleeve a lot of the time. So I thank you for taking time out and helping us to promote our program. My pleasure. So some pointers I wanted to throw out to everyone. So why we're so excited about our program and why we feel our program is definitely one of the top in the area. I mean, we are 2,200 plus surgeries to date. That's quite quite a bit of experience. And I think as we have more surgeons who are adopting the use of the robot, that's going to increase. And, and as our uh, volume increases and experience increases, our program is just going to become stronger and stronger. The more experience that you have and the more time you have in, the better the program. Absolutely. Which and is I so think, impressive. And, the, and then to add to that, I, I think it also just enhances our team. You talked about Dr. Corvo and I being a team, but the, the team is much deeper than that. I think we're just scratching the surface of the team. The team goes beyond us toward you, the administration, but... Really, the unsung heroes in this whole thing are the nurses and, and the OR techs um, who make it happen for us and who make our lives easy once we go past that red line into the operating room and, and bring our patients you know, to be cared for there. It is a fine-oiled machine. The day that we did the taping for the TV show, when I was in there, I just watched them. And it's incredible. And there was a patient that they were bringing in right after us, they had that room turned around and cleaned and ready, and their focus went from a camera to a patient in a nanosecond. Like, they didn't even have to, it was like incredible how quickly it happened, and watching them and their level of care and their level of expertise, I was so impressed. Absolutely, and, and I mean, the the people in the operating room who make it happen, not just the nurses and the techs, uh, meaning the operating room techs, but the technicians who take care of the robot, who make sure the video feeds and the audio feeds and everything's working properly. I mean, 
there is a lot of work uh, and time and effort that goes into maintaining the program beyond just the surgeons. Then we have a little number attached to that. So we had our marketing department did what we call this infographic, and it has a bunch of different, you know, fun facts and um, really important facts about the program itself and talking about the level of experience in, in, in totality between the nurses and the technicians in the level of expertise, there's about 170 years of experience between them. So if you put them together, they're, they're 170 years of experience. And that's incredible. That's a huge team. That's a huge team with uh, a lot of time spent. And we're not going to say how old we are within this team, right? So when we say 170 years, we don't want to date anyone. But definitely the level of experience, the patients can feel confident. Absolutely. That this program is st- state of the art. I can tell you that friends of mine and also family members of mine have been operated on at St. Mary's uh, with the robot and have done extraordinarily well and and have been pleased with the process from beginning to end. From the time they came into the hospital with the same day surgery nurses through the time they left um, being transported out to the front, they were extraordinarily impressed with the care they received. Now, some of the other fun facts that we have in here, and it's talking about meet the robots. So they're multi-talented. The robots' controls are so precise they can peel a grape faster than a human can even make an original swan smaller than a penny. Oh, sorry. Oh, no, origami swan. There you go. To ma- even make an origami swan smaller than a penny, so this, so it can peel a grape. It can actually peel a grape. Well, it can't peel a grape. The person behind the console the can pe- peel a grape see? with the robot. See? There you go. And what they're probably not telling you is that was actually a six-year-old child who got onto the console and peeled <laughs> the grape that quickly. Then it's it- actually humorous. So each year um, we have a meeting of the of the Connecticut surgeons at the a meeting called the Connecticut American College of Surgeons, um, and there's a resident competition that takes place there where residents compete in a number of different technical skills. The robot being one of them. Um, one of our, or actually the director, who's not a surgeon, but the director who puts that whole program together, Chris Tasek. He has a son who's eight years old named Connor. And Connor, we, we fortunately had the opportunity to have the robot at the CTACS meeting. And Connor got on the robot and had the simulator on, and he outperformed not only the residents, but every single surgeon who sat down on the console doing the simulation tasks. So this is our next generation. This is our next generation. Eight years old, he was scoring 99% on every single task that he did, and he just stepped on that thing that day. Incredible. He actually couldn't even sit down on the seat. He had to stand while he was using it. Oh, my God, that's amazing. And And think about that. Think about that. You know, that is our next generation because these kids, between their video games and their electronics, all the electronics that these kids are involved in, I'm not surprised. We were. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know that I want him performing a go- take out a gallbladder, but. It was impressive. And, and I think that's just sort of the portend of things to come in, in yeah. terms of, you know, how quickly. 
uh, our next generation is adapting to the changes in technology and how quickly they're going to be able to adapt to what comes in the future and the next generations of technology that arrive. And having this available right here in our community is so important because it makes it accessible to that next generation to make them want to stay. So if they have an aspiration of becoming a surgeon someday, they could say, well, I'm going to come right back home and practice my skills here because we have that technology. Because that's what we're looking to do is to grow it for the future. And I think that's the beauty of St. Mary's is I think St. Mary's recognizes that and that's why we were the first within our community to adopt the robotic platform five years ago and and we've really done a good job embracing it and mastering it. I mean, you know, going back to the whole teamwork element, uh, the company that produces the Da Vinci robot two years, or actually it's three years ago now, was having robotic teams from other hospitals. So it wasn't just the surgeons, but the team of nurses and OR techs and people who were in the operating room running the robot come to our hospital to observe our team work because we were or are so effective at having an excellent robotic program. Our turnaround times are great. Our docking times are great. Docking is the time it takes for you to attach the robot to the patient. All these things are so streamlined that they wanted other programs to uh, use us as as a uh, as a starting point for them. Exactly type type thing. I am blown away every time I hear you talk about the robot and about the program in general. And I think it's frustrating, I guess, for me um, being out in the community and educating. Community, you know, com- people in the community as well as community physicians, like, oh, I didn't realize you have a robot, and it's incredible to me because you can do so much marketing. You know, you can have billboards, you can have ads in the paper, you can have lectures such as you did uh, last week. I can have physicians on the radio. How do we get the word out there? I think it's more word of mouth by patient to patient. It's probably your bestseller. I- that is what's happening, and I think that's why our program has gained such a significant, uh, or has gained such a significant increase in its numbers, is because the more people who have their operations done robotically and are doing well, the word of mouth gets out, and and people come saying, "Well, I'd like you to do this robotically right. instead of, what do you mean robotically? They already know, and so you don't have to have those conversations because they understand what it means for them." Because somebody they know told them that they had the ro- had the surgery done robotically. Correct. There's something else that goes along with our robotic surgery, and we advertised on it a while ago, and then you brought it up in your lecture um, last week um, in the colorectal program, and it's called Firefly. And so people in the community may see that Firefly, and just want to make them understand because if you put it in relation, I understood it better. During your program uh, last week, when you talked about how it's utilized during a surgery such as a colon 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 resection, and I think that maybe putting it in that context for our audience would be great. Absolutely. So, what um, Firefly is is it's a technology that we use in association with the robot, and essentially what it allows us to do with a colon operation is to determine where the blood flow to the colon ends. Part of doing colon operation is you have to take away the blood supply to the segment of the colon that you're going to take out. 
But oftentimes when you're doing the operation with the naked eye, you don't know where you should cut across the colon because you're not really sure of where that blood supply ends. What Firefly, Firefly allows us to do it by injecting a uh, what's called immunofluorescent dye. It's a, a dye that you inject into the bloodstream that the robot actually has a special camera that has a laser attached to it. So it's almost like putting night vision goggles on. You, you click the robot into this special night vision mode, and what happens is a laser shoots out of the end of the camera, and that immunofluorescent dye reflects back at you as a bright green. So anything on and the it colon, is bright. It is, very. Uh, and anything in the colon that has a good blood supply turns that bright green, and you can see a very distinct cutoff where the bright green ends, and then there's absolutely nothing after that. And that's where you need to come across and cut across the colon at that point because you know that when you put the colon back together, there's excellent blood supply to that end piece. You, you, when you showed that last last week, it was amazing to me because originally where the surgeon thought he was going to make his cut prior to injecting the dye wasn't where he needed to be at all. And they've done several experiments, and, and there are a few papers out now where you know where you think you should be and, and where the actual place that you should cut is oftentimes is up to a centimeter difference. So that is definitely an incredible benefit, utilizing the robot in a colon resection. Absolutely. And unfortunately, there's no hard data out in terms of whether or not it truly decreases the amount of leaks or, or that we have after we put people back together. But um, data is forthcoming, and it seems that it will have an impact on it. I can only see, you know, you can only imagine it would. You know, based on if you attach, so if you attach the colon back and you've not utilized Firefly or the robotics in doing it and you put it back into an area that didn't have good blood supply, you mentioned leak. So maybe we can just make sure the audience understands what that is. So essentially, you know, if, if you sort of visualize colon surgery as, as plumbing and you're taking mm -hmm. two pipes and putting them back together, um, the area where you put those two pipes to, back together clearly has the opportunity to leak. So water can leak out. In this case, it would be stool. Mm -hmm. So when you don't have a good blood supply, it doesn't allow good tissue healing to occur. So what can happen is you get weakness along that, that uh, line where the two pieces of piping come together and stool can leak out, which can cause a big problem for a patient postoperatively. It's probably one of the most uh, feared complications um, by all of us who do these operations. And the one that has the most, you know, uh, has the biggest impact on the patient in terms of hospital stay and, and other issues that can happen. Right, and having further surgery. Correct. You know, and then, and then when you go back in, it's sometimes not as easy. It's definitely it. not as easy. Sometimes you have to, you know, give a patient a temporary colostomy, or as many people think of it, the bag, right. um, which is something that people are very, very uh, unhappy about. So it, this is a potential way of, of decreasing that. Yeah, I was amazed when showing just the the visualization of you being able to put that dye in, see it light up, and know where you needed to cut for, you know, for that patient. And it wasn't a huge distance away, but it was enough. Well, it's enough that it can, I think, make a significant difference. And, and this is just an example of, like, 
really cool technology and what's coming down the pike. So now, you know, we utilize that for the colon. We also utilize it in gallbladder surgery where we inject the dye about a half hour before we do gallbladder operations. And what it allows for is it allows us to identify where the critical structures are related to the gallbladder. So in this case, it's not the blood supply, but it's the pipes that drain the gallbladder. Yeah, I needed that in 1998, just saying. <laughs> but back then... <laughs> But you got the best of what we had back you, then. We, I did. I did. And now what's cool is, although it's not FDA approved, but it's going for approval, is you can actually put this, this fluorescent dye uh, into the ureters. And now you can put Firefly on while you're operating. And you can actually identify and see the ureters, which oftentimes is something that you can't see in, in when you're doing gynecologic surgery or when you're doing significantly... Um, difficult colon surgery, the ureter is one of those structures that you're worried about injuring. So when you actually push this dye up into the ureters, it will light up for the entire operation that you're doing, which is fantastic because it will really decrease uh, the uh, number of, of ureter injuries that occur. And then the next step beyond that is actually using this uh, dye to identify lymph nodes um, by injecting it in, into areas where maybe a cancer is, and then the dye will drain to the lymph nodes so you can identify lymph nodes that, that may be affected. So there's a lot of cool stuff coming down the pipe that uh, we're going to be able to do that's just going to further further prove the utility of, of the products. And because you've been using this for five years, you've you've been able to build up that level of knowledge, the level of expertise, and appreciate what's coming down the pipe as just being compliments to what the program already is and what your knowledge already is. Yeah, I, I'm looking forward to not only the new technology, new instrumentation, because as more and more people adopt the use of the robot, you know, there are smart people out there who are going to say, hey, why don't I do this or why don't we do that? And and we're going to have all kinds of neat things that are going to come out over the next five years. Now, what is the medical disciplines in our area that don't currently utilize robotics and is there potential to be able to incorporate them? I think I'm thinking orthopedics. I'm thinking a bunch, you know, some not, of the general things. We I don't do. know that orthopedics, but certainly there are a lot of uh, head and neck surgeons okay. who are now adopting using the robot for base of tongue surgery, for, for surgery in the back of the throat and mouth, because... Again, you can see really clearly in a place that you could never see before. It was almost like operating upside down on your head. Yeah. Now you can see everything in its normal orientation. You can see it up close and personal, and you can do a really good, distinct operation. Um, some people in, in Europe and Japan are doing thyroid operations with the robot through the armpit, um, parathyroid operations through the armpit, really pushing the limits as to what the robot can do. So... I really think that um, it's just what you, your own limitations are what you think they are. And right. if you don't think there are any limitations, I think, you know, it's boundless. It's boundless how go. far you can go with it. Now, you mentioned the next generation. We are looking into it. So what would that provide us with? The next generation of robot will provide us with the ability to... Um, do operations in a more efficient and, and quicker manner. Um, right now, if you have to do several different things, you have to actually undock the robot, move it elsewhere, and yep. redock the robot. The new generation of robot, the actual machine stays in one place, and you can pretty much operate in a 360-degree 
uh, radius without having to move much at all. Right, without so moving the robot. It enables you to increase uh, your uh, uh, the, the number of operations you can do at the same time. Right. And just to give you an idea of what's going on in sort of the robotic world, you know, there have been other competitors for the Da Vinci in the past, and I don't know if people are aware in the headlines, I think it was yesterday or the day before, that Google and Johnson & Johnson are now teaming up to come up with a competitive platform for the uh, the Da Vinci system, which is kind of interesting because clearly Google is a very forward-thinking company. If you look at the Google Car and, and Google Glasses and, and all of the projects that they have there, they're uh, I don't know if I'm, I'm comfortable in. with them op- operating on my gallbladder or my hernia, though. But <laughs> they won't. We they won't. won't. You will. That's right. Just going to come up with the product. Absolutely. So if we had to summarize our robotics program before we... And it, this time goes so fast, so I want to make sure that we talk a little bit about our health risk assessment that you're involved in. If we had to summarize this program of robotics at St. Mary's Hospital, how would you summarize it? I think our our robotics program for the size of hospital that we are is a cutting-edge program. I think we've very successfully established our program and maintained our program. I think that's apparent in the number of surgeons who are participating in it and in the number of of cases that we do. Um, at this point, for all the surgeons involved, sometimes it's very difficult to get time on the robot right. because there are so many people. But we have two now. We have two. Um, maybe maybe another one. Maybe another one. Maybe we'll another see. One. We'll see. <laughs> um, so I, I think, and the beauty of that is that, you know, seven years ago, eight years ago, even going on up to six years ago, people had to leave the community and travel to big tertiary centers, go to New York City, go up to Boston to have these operations done. And now they can have it done right here. They don't have to leave. They don't right. have to go to one of these specialty centers or big-name places. We do it, and we do it well. You do it incredibly and, well. And um, we've been very successful at it. So we're very proud of, of the product that we've created. I say that to patients all the time. Why did you go even to the next county? You didn't even need to leave your backyard. And I think a lot of it is because they don't know. They don't know. They and that's our, know. that's right. They and that's know. part of our goal. And so if you want to learn more about robotic surgery or even about Dr. Palesti, because he's on our website, you can go on stmh.org. And we actually have the, um, show that we did on WTNH about the robotics program. And you can click on there and see the robot in action and learn more about the program. And you can actually go on our Franklin Medical Group website, which you can find on our stmh.org, and learn more about Dr. Palesti and see all the surgeons that participate in the robotic surgery program. So we encourage you to do that. Now, not wanting to switch gears, but we'll switch gears a little bit because identifying a patient that has potential for cancer can lead to surgery in the future um, in some cases. And in some cases, a robotic surgery. But yourself and Dr. Corvo are very passionate about a program we're going to be starting. So maybe we want to just give the audience a snapshot of what that program is, and we will be educating more moving forward. So the the program that we've become quite passionate about is a high-risk cancer program. 
and developing that for our community. And basically what that would do is there's sort of two arms to it. One, which is fairly well established, would be identifying women who are at high risk for breast cancer, who've had familial uh, history of breast cancer or other high-risk issues to have their BRCA testing done. Um, the other arm of that is to identify patients who are at high risk for colon cancer um, through uh, a syndrome that's called Lynch syndrome. And Lynch syndrome is is a genetic, uh, genetically inherited syndrome that can uh, predispose somebody not only to getting colon cancer, but uterine cancer, ovarian cancer, stomach cancer, uh, liver cancer. You, you can get some bladder cancers and some there are several others that are associated with it, but not in the same percentage. So what our goal is is to identify those patients who are at higher risk than normal and screen them appropriately, either with a colonoscopy or with other testing such as uh, ultrasounds and CAT scans and things of that nature if you're high risk. Right. And, you know, this is all related to family history, the number of people who may have had these types of cancers in the past, your own history of cancers. A lot of women who may have had ovarian cancer in the past or may have had uterine cancer in the past aren't necessarily aware of the fact that they could be Lynch syndrome patients and have those genes that may predispose them to having colon cancer in the future. And early detection is beyond finding a cancer early. It's about knowing if you have the trait. It's about knowing if you have the trait. It's about awareness is really what it is and, and raising community awareness. And I think breast cancer is very well publicized and, right. and people are very aware of, of what their risk factors are with breast cancer. Unfortunately, colon cancer, because it's the dirty cousin right. of breast cancer, doesn't get the same publicity. And, and I think it's just as dangerous, if not more dangerous. And I think we need to raise awareness of how... Uh, you can be uh, uh, predisposed to breast cancer and how we can try and identify those people who are. And once we identify you, if you are eligible, you would have a genetic test that would tell us whether or not you truly carry those traits. And if you do, then you can be put into a screening program where you would need colonoscopies right. more frequently than the average person. And that's really what our goal is. And the two of you have led this cause and I am jumping on for the ride because I'm incredibly passionate about it being that I started the BRCA testing program when I worked for Naugatuck Valley Radiology. We really felt it was a campaign. I wanted to get involved in being a nurse and being passionate about my patients and wanting them to find out well before we would see something on a mammogram. When you brought me in and talked to me about this, I said, oh, yeah, let's do this. This is definite. So we are actually working to educate all of our primary care physicians currently about instituting a health risk assessment that they'll get when they come to one of our offices. So essentially what that is is it's just a questionnaire that that the patient fills out either with the physician or before they see their physician or with the physician's assistant, and it identifies about eight or nine different questions that the patient will answer, which will help us decide whether or not they fit into the high-risk profile. So they kind of have red flags. Exactly. And then once they're red flagged, there'll be another series of questions to further define uh, whether or not they are eligible for the genetic testing that may be needed. 
when I did the process with just the BRCA testing or the, or the breast cancer gene testing, women were incredibly fearful to answer those questions because they didn't want to know. So I feel like sometimes we still have a society of, I don't want to know. And that's scary. And I, I want to educate the public that when you do know, you can be put into this high-risk profile and you can get screened more frequently and we can watch you more closely for any signs. And I think what screening enables is it enables you to get to the cancer early enough that you can avoid an operation. Absolutely. And that you can avoid some of the... the uh, more fearful things that can happen. You know, and I don't I don't like to go down this road, but I mean, you know, to make this more understandable for the public, you look at a star figure like Angelina Jolie and what she's done recently. And that's what we're talking about. Or you look at Katie Couric, who had colon right. cancer. I mean, you know. And, and her husband and, uh, died of it. Correct. Her husband died of it. And, you know, knowing if he knew sooner that he carried that that gene, he would have, you know, he wouldn't have died probably today. I apologize. I'm joking here. <coughs> Sorry. No, I'm going to get the coffee. <laughs> so I wanted to educate the public on this, but I think it's something we'll do a little bit more moving forward. Um, but we are going to be instituting it within the Franklin Medical Practices. Correct. So at this point, there are several primary care practices that have already adopted it, and there are also... Our GI practices have adopted it, so we'll be moving forward from there and, and monitoring uh, how many people we've identified uh, who fit the trait, and it will be interesting to see, uh, you know, how well we do. And the other important element of it is, is that if you have the trait, remember, this is a genetic trait that gets passed down, so you're not only protecting yourself, you're protecting your children and your brothers and sisters as well Absolutely. because they have the chance of having it too. I can't tell you how impactful it was for me in the short time that we were doing the testing ourselves and the program. I identified five women that carried the gene, and that was really just from a July to an October testing frame. It was incredible. It's very satisfying. It really was, and they were so...